Good afternoon, everybody. My name is uh, Dan Albrick with Leopardo Construction. I'm a uh, programs co-chair along with Jeanette Outlaw with OFS Brands. Um, got a great topic today. Uh, obviously, with the interest here, we could have assembled a panel probably about 10 times the size, but, uh, and in the sake of time, we're going to limit my part of who, you know, the, talking about the biographies. So on the tables is a biography sheet with all of our speakers. Um, this program is going to be podcast, so if you have any questions, we encourage participation with our audience, so please raise your hand, and uh, one of us will come around with a microphone so that uh, we can get your questions and the answers uh, in the footage, so... Um, next month's program, as Stephanie had mentioned, is a year in retrospect. So far, we've got committed uh, folks from the John Buck Company and Studley to give a landlord, landlord perspective and development perspective of what this year has meant, what we've learned. Same with the tenant perspective, tenant representation perspective. And that is on uh, Thursday, November 12th. Uh, today is uh, Enduring Resources, Reducing Negative Impacts on Natural Resources While Improving Indoor Environments. Our moderate, moderator flew in from California in the wind from two days ago, made it in safely, thank goodness, is uh, James Hawks, and he's with uh, Greenwork Studio. Uh, and then our speakers today are Tom Cushing, who's the uh, member of the Chicago Climate Exchange, David Reynolds, with Vice President of the IFF, and Pat Mara, who's Senior Vice President with JMB Realty. Also, we have uh, a couple of contributors to this thing. We wouldn't be able to pull this off without uh, the help of Adam Meek and uh, uh, Jim Mitchell, and we were going to pull them in uh, on this discussion as well from uh, Brownfield legal side of things, incentive side of things. So we're going to get a little dialogue going between the audience, so we encourage this throughout. So uh, again, please take a look at the biographies. These will also be posted uh, on the website. So thank you. I'm going to bring the speakers up now. A round of applause for our panelists and speakers. Thank you. Good afternoon. Hopefully you can hear me. I've managed to turn my mic on okay, and I think Tom was surprised that he was actually going to have to come up right now. So, But uh, thank you very much for attending today. We're very excited about the opportunity to speak with you um, on this subject, Enduring Resources, uh, how you reduce negative impacts on natural resources while improving indoor environments. Um, this is a, a very uh, significant topic, uh, but I, my wife suggested that I share a, a cute little story with you, um, more on the silly side related to this. Uh, my niece, who's eight years old, asked her uh, what I do for a living. And my wife said, well, he's a consultant for an architecture and engineering firm. And she said, well, what does he really do? Um, he helps companies uh, reduce uh, greenhouse gas, gases and, and emissions. And she said, they have gas? <laughs> Couldn't they just take a big dose of Beano and be done with it? So it, it's now my, uh, my line of work's been nicknamed the Global Beano Project. So anyway, uh, if we can advance to the next slide, we have some learning objectives that we wanted to, uh, to get through with you. I don't, unless I was given the clicker. Up oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, 
essentially we wanted to help uh, you understand what the federal approaches to regulating greenhouse gases and emissions are from operations and facilities, including energy efficiency and green building requirements as it's been implemented in California, therefore the reason for me being here. Uh, case studies from the local, national, and international level. Uh, how to measure, manage, and reduce your carbon footprint and how to leverage your real estate portfolio to enhance sustainability, address energy efficiency, and general financing, financial savings. Next slide, please. Uh, timing is everything. In, in this month's issue of The Atlantic, there's a, a big article here on the California experiment. And interestingly enough, we, we, we can't seem to manage our budgets. Uh, our schools are in abysmal shape. But the one thing we seem to have gotten right was energy. And so, if you advance to the next slide, this is essentially where we're uh, leading and began in 2006, although the energy movement in California certainly began in the 1960s and 1970s in the Lawrence Berkeley laboratories. But this is what uh, seems to be moving through the national agenda with the new administration, uh, a, which is affectionately known as AB 32, the Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006, uh, which seeks to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions to 1990 baseline level by 2020, which is a 15% reduction from the current level. Uh, there's a series of activities that are moving through that in order to, to get to that threshold. And, and then the, the governor decided to add one bigger goal onto the end of that, which was to reduce things by 80% by 2050. Next slide, please. Just a quick look at California's carbon footprint. Um, clearly, transportation is the, the largest contributor to that and a lot of uh, the focus has been on that, but as we'll be hearing today, and certainly what is in, uh, near and dear to the hearts of uh, the corporate real estate uh, professional is, is what facilities are contributing to that equation, and so we'll be talking about that at, at great detail today. Next slide, please. So how do we achieve these reductions? Hey, we can claim tax credits from living in zero carbon homes. Um, it's not a laughing matter, but it, it, it's, it's going to be an interesting road, and, and certainly the folks here on the panel will be able to address that. Next slide, please. So some of the strategies that we're uh, looking at trying to reduce these emissions, uh, cross-cutting strategies for building zero net energy is something you may have heard of, or net zero energy buildings is on the horizon. A lot of the utilities are involved in trying to promote that through incentives. Uh, codes and standard strategies, looking at more stringent building codes in order to uh, to make this uh, a reality, and strategies for existing buildings, such as voluntary and mandatory whole building retrofits for existing buildings, and innovative financing to overcome first cost. Next slide, please. Some additional strategies, uh, existing and improved utility programs, as I just previously mentioned, and other needed strategies that, that uh, address a, a host of other items that uh, come into play, along with solar water heating and combined heating and power. Green building, I, I know this group has certainly talked a lot about LEED, so I'll, I'll briefly touch on this. Um, certain, uh, lots of current green building policies and programs that are in place and moving forward. And certainly we're beginning to see recommended actions in, in several uh, sectors uh, that are gonna be applied. Uh, one of the most significant that we're seeing is in the public schools area of trying to, to get public schools to a grid neutral uh, uh, baseline. Next slide, please. Uh, some legislation that will certainly uh, be interesting to this group, which you're probably aware of if you're operating in California, and I know it's being contemplated nationally, which is uh, reporting to 
Energy Star in terms of the performance of your buildings. Uh, and beginning January 1st in California, you'll have to disclose that information uh, whether you're selling, leasing, or trying to finance that property. So it's, it's real, it's here, uh, and it's going to make a greater and greater impact. Next slide, please. Some other things that are uh, going on in the environment, the 2030 challenge you're probably aware of or heard of. Uh, if you're working with architects or you are architects, this is an initiative that's being pursued heavily by AIA in order to try and create designs that reduce uh, emissions and, and um, reliance on fossil fuel. Uh, we've got a 50% regional average reduction from uh, coming up here in 2010. And then the next slide talks about sort of the rollout of, oh, sorry, next slide, rollout of how we're looking to make those reductions uh, out to 2030 where we, we, we're looking to reach a carbon neutral uh, point. Next slide, please. On the federal regulation side, and certainly um, the speakers here can talk in greater detail about that, certainly the, uh, Tom from the uh, Chicago Climate Exchange. But a couple of bills, uh, one that's made it through, the Waxman-Markey bill uh, that was approved by the House and now is undergoing some uh, changes, amendments, uh, maybe softening, as some might say, through the Kerry-Boxer Senate bill. But essentially, it's, it's looking at uh, applying some of what was uh, pursued in California uh, across on a national basis, um, but looking at reductions in carbon emissions at 2020, 2030, and 2050 as well as uh, potential new standards for building efficiency uh, and for lighting products, commercial furnaces, and other appliances. And with that, I will turn it over to uh, Tom. Great. Uh, I think we've got a slide that we're going to switch out here. We'll see if that comes up or not. Is, uh, am I live here? Can you hear me? On the mic? Okay. Um, oh, good afternoon. My name is Tom Cushing. I'm the Senior Vice President at the Chicago Climate Exchange. I assume that most of you folks are Chicago folks, or at least from the Midwest, uh, except for some of our, our visitors who are here for the program. Uh, so I'm going to talk briefly. I know there's a few of us to speak, and so maybe I'll take about 10 minutes or so uh, to tell you from our perspective uh, where we see a little bit of the national discussion going around carbon uh, in the context of the specifics of cap and trade. Uh, and actually some of the details about how it works at the Chicago Climate Exchange and how companies that might look a little bit like the companies you folks represent and maybe some of you in fact uh, are managing their carbon emissions through the Chicago Climate Exchange. Um, I'm not so great with the slides. I tend to jump around, um, but we'll see how we do uh, with, uh, with this portion of it. So why don't we let's try to obey the rules and start with the first one. Great. So. Uh, one thing that everyone knows is that our current president uh, has recommended and suggested and cajoled and urged Congress to pass legislation that would restrict carbon emissions and urge that it be a cap-and-trade model. The next slide. And surprisingly, as long back as 2005, so four years ago, which is almost a lifetime ago in the United States in terms of awareness of carbon emissions, greenhouse gases, and the potential for global warming growing out of human conduct, in 2005, uh, the um, International Chamber of Congress had called upon the world to implement a, a national carbon restriction and carbon trading program to reduce greenhouse gases. So this is something that two or three years ago here in the United States would sound very ar arcane and a little bit out there, and today is very much uh, 
right in kind of the mainstream of a lot of companies' uh, core business. Next slide, please. So let me talk just for a minute about the Chicago Climate Exchange, what it is to put in context the, the, the conversation. The Chicago Climate Exchange, first and foremost, is a financial institution. It's an exchange. Just like the Board of Trade is where people buy and sell beans and corn, the New York Stock Exchange is where people buy and sell shares of stock. The Chicago Climate Exchange is an exchange where people buy and sell allowances to emit greenhouse gases or other pollutants in our futures exchange. Now, why would anyone buy an allowance to emit carbon dioxide or another greenhouse gas? You're not required to do that in the United States. You don't have to have an allowance in order to emit. So in addition to operating the exchange where people buy and sell those allowances, we founded and started operating in the year 2003 a private cap-and-trade program. It's voluntary to join, but once you join, it's legally binding. And could you go to the next slide, please? And all the members take on the same commitment, which is to reduce their emissions from a year 2000 baseline to 6% below their year 2000 emissions by the end of 2010. So we issue allowances in company, and we issue allowances in decreasing amounts over the years of their membership up through 2010. By, the, by 2010, they have allowances to emit basically 94% of what their baseline emissions were. In a given year, if they need more allowances, in other words, if they emit more than the allowances we've granted them in the program, they buy surplus allowances from someone else in the program who didn't need all of theirs. If they emit less than what they have allowances for, than what they have permission for, then they have a surplus, surplus of allowances that they can sell. So it's a cap and trade. If you could return back to the previous slide, please. So how big is this in the United States? Well, uh, some of the companies that you'd recognize and some of them that are germane to uh, your work, Pat's company, JMB Realty, is a member, and they manage their carbon from the buildings that they own within our cap and our cap and trade system. Other companies whose emissions are primarily building-based would be Bank of America, uh, IBM, Safeway Stores, which here in Chicago is Dominic's. All those are members of the Chicago Climate Exchange whose emissions profile primarily comes out of the operation of their buildings. Um, other businesses that might be related to what you do are Interface Carpet, uh, Knoll Furniture, Steelcase Furniture. Now, they're, they have manufacturing operations, and so they're going to manage the emissions from their manufacturing under the cap. And then the real big heavy emitters are the power companies. And we've got about 22% of the emissions associated with power production in the United States under our cap today. American Electric Power out of Columbus, Ohio, they burn more coal than anyone in the Western Hemisphere. They're a CCX member. Detroit Edison, Reliant in Texas, NRG in the Northeast, Tampa Electric in the Southwest, Puget Sound in the Northwest. Uh, we have over 20 power companies that have committed to reduce their emissions by 6% by 2010. So what this illustrates is that if you look at the collective baseline emissions of our members on the far left there, it's over 630 metric ton, pardon me, over 630 million metric tons per year are under the CCX cap. Now, what's the context for that? In Europe, there's a mandatory cap and trade. Germany has the most emissions under the cap in Europe. Germany has about 495 million metric tons under their cap. So the United States, through CCX, has the world's largest 
national cap-and-trade. The cap-and-trade commitment under a cap in the U.S. through CCX is bigger than any other country in the world. So it does put in context what, uh, what the direction is that this is going. I should mention we also operate the exchange in Europe uh, that is the largest exchange in the mandatory European program. We have about 85 to 90 percent of the business there in Europe. We compete with six or seven other exchanges. And we recently opened an exchange in China. Our partner there is the largest corporation in China. It's their national oil company, CNPC, the Chinese National Petroleum Corporation. They're not trading yet, but we have, we're putting the pieces in place and building the infrastructure. We also have part ownership in the Canadian exchange and an exchange in Australia. Uh, we are uh, partnering with folks in uh, Korea and in India to explore the possibility of developing exchanges there. So for you Chicagoans, there should be a certain point of pride that this is a Chicago-based export around the world, this development of exchanges for greenhouse gas emissions. Bart Shilton, one of the commissioners at the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which regulates futures exchanges, uh, stated in print uh, a year ago that he believed that the commodities market for carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emission allowances would be the largest derivatives market in the world in the next five years. I hope it is. It'll be good for our business. Okay. Now, uh, just briefly, and, I, I, and then I'm going to close because I know that there uh, are folks who can speak more directly to what you folks are, uh, your business. Could you advance the uh, screen? One more. Um, now, why would a company uh, get engaged? What, why does this happen? First of all, uh, being involved in a, in a cap-and-trade like this, a private cap-and-trade program, and as I said, some of the members include companies like DuPont, Ford Motor Company, Monsanto, uh, United Technologies, Honeywell, uh, the various power companies we talked about, you know, uh, as well as European companies that regulate their U.S. emissions here in the U.S. So um, uh, Rolls-Royce, Bayer, um, uh, 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 oh, I'm drawing a blank on the German company, Bosch. So many of them are also engaged here in the U.S. Uh, they're managing their U.S. emissions through CCX. And really being involved in a cap-and-trade like this is a tool that companies can use uh, to achieve their entity-wide reductions. You know, they can use the market if they need to, to 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 increase the reductions that they can't make at the smokestack. Uh, it gives them an opportunity to be involved in a system that incorporates multiple sectors from the economy into one program to reduce. Uh, it allows them to align themselves with leading countries, companies across the economy. And it also gives them an opportunity to verify and register their performance. So when a company joins CCX, we require that they submit certain data that, that, that indicates what their emissions are. We turn that data over to a third party who verifies, puts them through a verification exercise, not unlike an audit, where they really scrub out the numbers and confirm that, that it's accurate. And then once that's done, their emissions data and information is put into a registry at CCX. So it allows companies to get a verification then a registry of their emissions because many companies recognize that's going to be essential as they move forward into mandatory uh, national carbon restriction. Companies do it for readiness. If they have a large emissions profile and they're going to be regulated in the federal program, then it's important to them to learn how to do this ahead of time. You could advance the next slide if you would. Um, it's also an opportunity for companies to differentiate themselves in their markets. And it also helps companies meet 
the expectations of their stakeholders. And so if it's the tenants in your building, or if it's the ownership of your company that says, listen, we have an expectation that we're going to be responsible as far as greenhouse gases and uh, global warming are concerned. This is an opportunity for companies to, ahead of regulation, take on a commitment that's binding, and then to meet the commitment and satisfy the requirements of their various stakeholders. Um, I, uh, uh, I have a talk that goes for an hour, but I'm not giving that one today. So uh, that being said, I'm going to uh, uh, ask you folks if you have questions, save them. There'll be ample opportunity to take questions at the end, but thanks very much. Thank you, Tom. David, could you? <clears throat> sure, I'm going to be brief. Uh, my name is David Reynolds. Um, I was here before you in 2004 when I was the first deputy commissioner for the City of Chicago Department of Environment. Um, since then, I've had the opportunity to go into the consulting world and work with utilities, private developers, public entities um, to implement sustainability. And I'm currently with IFF, it was formerly the Illinois Facilities Fund. We're a nonprofit that provides lending, real estate consulting, and research to other nonprofits for capital projects. Um, I grew up Baptist, which means that I tend to speak in groups of three, because every Baptist sermon has three points. And so my three points that I want to share with you based on my experience since I was here before are language, it's all good, and it's about good choices. On the language side, one thing I've learned um, over the past few years is that how we as real estate professionals talk about energy efficiency and talk about sustainability goes a long ways towards our clients' willingness to accept it. Um, I'll give you an anecdote. When I was at the city of Chicago, one of the things that I was working on was helping to make the city's buildings more green. Now, if I sat down with a fire chief and told him I was going to get him a green building, you know, he looked at me and it's going to cost more and why are we doing that? And they just didn't get it. But if I said, I'd like to work with you to make your building a healthy place for your employees, your firefighters to live, to work, we're going to do it in a way that saves you money so your operational costs are lower. And by the way, it's going to be more durable because we're conserving resources. Well, now I'm using a language that he understood. Often I find that when people talk about green buildings, they think of uh, uh, geodesic domes with VW microbuses parked outside, which is sort of a very old way of thinking about it. Now on the it's all good piece, um, we talk a lot about carbon, we're talking about carbon today. A thing to keep in mind is that carbon emissions are directly related to how your clients use energy and how they use fuel. So a lot of the things that we'll be talking about are about reducing energy use, reducing fuel use. Well, guess what? If you reduce energy use and reduce fuel use, your operating costs go down. Now, we're not sure, we don't know what's going to happen as far as the cost of carbon and how that could affect energy prices and fuel prices, but if you're working with your clients to reduce their energy use and reduce their fuel use, ultimately, it's all good. You're saving them money. You're helping them save money in operations. The final thing that I'd like to talk about is uh, making good choices. And uh, besides being a Baptist, I tend to be an optimist. Every year for the past 12 years, I've asked my wife for a llama for Christmas. And every year, I believe I'm going to get one. I haven't gotten one yet. But my optimistic side wants to believe that we're going to get to a point in time where sustainable design, green design, is not something extra. It's how we do business. I believe, back to good choices, there's lots of things that we can do as real estate professionals working with our clients to help them make good choices to create healthy 
energy efficient, durable workplaces, buildings, whatever the, the thing is that we're working with our clients on. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to cost more. What's important is integration, because if you try to take a building that you've already designed as a, tradition, a traditional building and make it green, you're going to cost more, take longer, and it's not going to work as well. It's important to have the vision for making your building sustainable in place with your client at the beginning so it can truly be integrated into the entire process. In the place or in the, in the situations where making a building more energy efficient or sustainable does cost money, perhaps it's upgrading uh, HVAC system, adding more insulation, increasing the uh, building envelope. In those cases, as real estate consultants, we should be prepared to help our client make a good choice. So we should come with the information to describe not only the first cost, but the life cycle cost of that investment. So there, our clients feel like they're making an informed choice, not only for their capital today, but for their operations long time. So um, I guess I didn't know how to close a Baptist sermon. I must have been asleep by that time. So <laughs> that's basically it for me. It boils down to language. It's all good. And it's about making good choices. Thank you, David. Go ahead, Pat. Hi, I'm Pat Mara with JMB Realty Corporation. Uh, we're here today because uh, we joined the Chicago Climate Exchange about two and a half years ago. So I wanted to relay our experience. We've done a number of greening initiatives in our company, lead certification, a couple of green roofs. But really the most impact that we've seen has been through the Chicago Climate Exchange. Um, to tell you a little bit about the process, kind of the, the first step was doing an inventory of what we emit. Uh, we emit mostly electricity, lots of it. Uh, we then developed a discipline internally where now I get monthly utility usage reports just like I get monthly operating statements from all my properties. And we are constantly on the lookout for projects of you know, it started very simple, very low-tech. We're getting a lot more sophisticated as we, we go along with it. But just by adopting this discipline, by having the legal commitment that our company has made, it puts a focus on things. And what people focus on, they, they tend to get results in. So while our target over the last two and a half years would be about a 4% reduction, uh, we've been able to reduce 20% of our greenhouse gas emissions. So that not only has generated some pretty significant credits through the uh, climate exchange, but also just from a pure financial standpoint, we're saving one and a half to two million dollars a year on electricity expense, which certainly is meaningful to us. So maybe later we can get into kind of more specific things to be done or however you want to take it. Well, I'm I'm wondering, it's sort of on the uh, uh, line of good choices, and clearly uh, there had to be some good choices involved in, in moving from a goal of 4% to 20%. What, what sorts of, uh, was that a combination of low-hanging fruit or bigger initiatives that, that took you to that threshold? Well, it certainly started with the low-hanging fruit, things like, you know, why did the lights come on at 6 a.m.? Answer, because the office manager in 1989 
programmed it that way. <laughs> Back when apparently electricity was free or, or nobody cared. So it, it can be very simple things like that to uh, you know, reprogramming an, an entire building so that the lights go off at 6 o'clock and uh, people now call in just like they do for overtime air to get overtime lighting. Um, in our hotels, we've got a couple pretty interesting systems. Most hotel usage is in the heating and, and cooling in the individual rooms. I mean, you can imagine you have 400 separate air conditioning units in a hotel. So how do we control that uh, in a way that our guests are comfortable and feeling like, you know, I'm paying $500 a night for this hotel room, I deserve to be cool, while still scaling it back when they, when they don't need it. So we've uh, put in a system where as soon as somebody checks out, the air conditioning is automatically cut off in that room. Um, we're not as far as, as Europe where you put your key in the slot just to be able to turn on the lights. I don't, our guests won't accept that yet, but I suspect in a few years uh, you'll see that be much more commonplace. You know, I, it, those are some great illustrations, Pat. And, um, Another uh, experience of one of our members came to mind when you're given that example. Some universities are members, and Michigan State University came to a similar conclusion, like you said, about turning the lights on and off, where uh, maybe there was a professor who had things scheduled such that uh, he was going to teach or she was going to teach a Thursday night class from 7 to 9. <coughs> and they would find that they would uh, have whatever building that professor was teaching in, they would keep it all powered up till 9 o'clock at night when it was being powered up to serve, you know, maybe a dozen or two dozen people for those last four hours of operation. And they found out that by consolidating the classes that were at off hours and things of that nature, it's just a, qu a question of planning and more coordination. And that's, I think, kind of sets the stage for many, many different illustrations of how that can be achieved. Um, were there any incentives involved in terms of, of reaching that, that goal? Um, not specifically. Um, I'm finding that engineers like attention. They haven't gotten a lot of attention over the years, and they are now a very important part of the management team at each of our properties. Um, I'm finding that, in general, there's one person, often younger, at each property that is really into this stuff. So I really empower them to, to go about and find ideas. And if there are properties where I can't find anybody, you know, I've brought a consultant in on, on a couple of properties who, you know, he's my energy czar. So go find me savings. I wanted to open up to, to Adam Meek about uh, what incentives might be available here in the state of Illinois as well as through utilities that might help to uh, help uh, building owners and end users uh, meet these sorts of um, reductions in energy use. Sure. Um, everyone hear me? Uh, you know, on, on, uh, in Illinois, uh, you'd like to think that there would be a, a host of government programs that would provide you great incentives to uh, jump on the bandwagon and uh, reduce your energy and hence reduce your carbon footprint. Um, really, uh, to be honest, the best incentives come from the utilities themselves. Um, utilities like uh, Commonwealth Edison and others actually have uh, programs that would provide you provide you um, tax rebates um, for uh, making commitments that reduce your, um, your energy use. And there are certain programs uh, or, or um, 
things that you can do for your building or your facility that are on a list and they're called prescriptive um, uh, systems. And uh, if you're on that list, then you can get up to $100,000 uh, tax break per year per facility. So it's actually pretty significant. Um, and things on the list would be um, improvements to HVAC systems, um, uh, basically um, uh, anything that involves um, reduction in, in motor use, um, refrigeration, and a number of other things that um, you know you can you can explore. Um, things that are not um, on that list are uh, switching to uh, alternative energy uh, uses, uh, fuel switching, some things that you might expect to be on there but are not. So certainly, uh, you know, there's some opportunity, uh, but you have to look and, and check out the list. There are also some uh, custom opportunities uh, where it would have to be reviewed by the utility uh, that would allow you uh, to get uh, tax rebates that um, are not quite one-to-one, -one, but uh, you can essentially get 50% of your expenditures on changing those systems. Um, <coughs> And that goes up to, uh, I think it's capped to $200,000 per facility uh, per year. So the utilities are really motivating um, folks to try to do things that are going to improve their um, carbon footprint by creating greater energy efficiency. At the government level, um, again, you'd like to think in the sort of the, the time of uh, the Obama administration and the awareness of these green issues um, that the government would come to the table and provide all these great incentives for you to, you know, step up and, uh, and do this. As it turns out, um, there really are not as many government programs designed to really uh, push you in this direction. Um, and I know that uh, Tom talked about the idea of voluntary uh, versus compliance markets. You know, right now, we're, we don't have a cap-and-trade system. We don't have anything that says you have to reduce your carbon footprint. Um, it's coming. We know it's coming in some form. Um, well, with respect to the government programs, um, you know, they've tried various things to uh, create incentives, mostly related to alternative energy um, and mostly large-scale projects. Um, but a number of the programs that they put out, and there's a list of them, and frankly, right off the top of my head, they, they all tend to blend together. But, you know, there's, you know, eight or eight or nine programs that go to, you know, alternative energy use, um, uh, uh, energy efficiency, and, uh, and the like, but mostly they go to uh, large-scale projects, they go toward um, alternative energy projects, and really would not, for the most part, apply to uh, most typical building and facility owners. So um, in terms of the, uh, the government programs, uh, there's not as much out there as you might think, and in fact, um, a number of the, uh, the programs that they did identify uh, are underfunded and essentially not accepting applications, and the ones that do remain, um, the applications are due on October uh, 26th, I believe. So if you'd like a more detailed list of these programs and what qualifies, I'd be happy to provide it. But I can't tell you there's any uh, silver bullet that's really going to prompt you to, um, to jump on the bandwagon. The best programs are actually those provided by the utilities themselves. Um, having said that, to echo some of the points of the speakers, um, there are any number of reasons to do this even if you're not getting, you know, pushed by some uh, monetary incentive. Um, you know, the fact is, is that we are moving toward um, a system that is going to require more carbon control and minimization. And getting a head start, understanding the, uh, the system is, uh, is critical. 
And there's also a brand recognition. I can't remember which of the speakers brought it up. Um, I think it might have been Pat. Um, you know, the youth of America uh, really cares about this issue. And it's driving a lot of what we do. Brand issues and brand recognition is key in this area. If you are perceived as someone who's lagging behind, you're going to get spanked. So even though a lot of what's going on right now is voluntary, and as an attorney, um, you know, there's a big uh, you know, difference in my mind generally between what am I required to do versus what am I doing kind of on my own conscience. Um, in this, in this uh, area, um, they, the two get blended because there are real incentives um, from a business and cost uh, standpoint to, uh, to take a step toward uh, energy efficiency and carbon, re carbon reduction. Um, so if you'd like to discuss it further, we, you know, we could get into more detail, but I think as a general proposition, um, you know, that, uh, that provides an overview. Jim, is there anything you'd like to add to this? Nope. I guess not. Carry on. Thank you, Adam. <clears throat> One of the areas that I'm interested in <clears throat> understanding more about, uh, and this question is directed at Tom, we're working with a uh, community college district in California, Los Angeles Community College District in particular, that is looking to design their campuses to be uh, grid neutral or grid independent, actually. Uh, and one of their hopes is to be able to sell uh, renewable energy credits uh, as a revenue source to help support their mission. And uh, what I wanted to ask is, is there a viable opportunity to generate revenue from carbon credits and from renewable energy credits? Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> when I, uh, I can tell you just a little story. The, uh, before I started working at the Chicago Climate Exchange, which was a little over three years ago, uh, I was uh, in a room where uh, Al Gore's movie was being previewed. And actually, he, he was there, and he was speaking, and uh, I was just this complete neophyte in, the, in this area. This is not something that I grew up with. Um, but the thought that I had was, gosh, how can you uh, get business, which is responsible for the, the lion's share of emissions, to be motivated to make reductions? And really, that's what cap-and-trade is about, is to provide a financial incentive to perform environmental services. So uh, when uh, JMB Realty said, okay, if we join the Chicago Climate Exchange, if we reduce by you know, uh, what their target is and then we reduce more than that, we're gonna earn these credits and then we'll see what those credits are worth. Maybe somebody will buy them for a dime, maybe somebody will buy them for $10, but it's an asset that we didn't have before. And when there's a financial incentive it sparks innovation and it, it motivates people. How many times have you driven down the street in your neighborhood and you notice that this gas station was selling gas at $2.78 and this gas station was selling gas at $2.80? You said, those lousy SOBs, what are they doing ripping me off for two cents, right? People recognize, now, the two cent difference, even if you fill your tank, isn't going to amount to a dollar. But where there's a, where there's a price, it motivates conduct. So. Uh, I don't know the specifics of the community college program out in L.A., but by all means, there are incentives to reducing your emissions or to somehow producing these uh, uh, renewable energy credits that will drive behavior. We had um, probably three years ago, a professor from MIT called our organization, and we're a very flat organization. He got Richard Sandor on the phone, which isn't a miracle. You know, the boss uh, periodically picks up the phone. And so this professor said, do I understand that you have some sort of a market where people can make money by reducing carbon in the atmosphere? And he said, well, that's a pretty kind of a, a, a 
fundamental way to put it, but yeah. And he said, so if I can figure something out that will get carbon out of the atmosphere, then it, it can, uh, it, it's something that could get, you know, get paid for? And he said, sure. The guy said, okay, thanks. That's, that's all the questions I have. We heard from him later on. It turned out he had an idea. And at the time, carbon was selling, the, these emission allowances were selling for about $2 a ton. And his idea was that if, if uh, he had a process that would speed up photosynthesis, if he threw algae on a pond in a carbon-enriched atmosphere, maybe uh, just outside a power plant, uh, there would be a rapid growth of the algae and of the, the plant material, and that that acts as a sponge and it sucks the carbon out of the air, and then it could be dried and, and burned as a fuel. And it seemed like kind of a, a, a uh, at the time, maybe a crazy idea, until somebody paid him $10 million for the idea. <laughs> you know, and a guy sits there and says, uh, you know, carbon at $2 a ton times a billion tons, that's a big number. So there certainly is a financial opportunity and to provide a financial incentive, when there's a price, it spurs inventive behavior. And I think of the kids who I know who didn't often talk to other folks in the cafeteria in high school, and some of those gals and guys are scratching their head thinking, Hmm, carbon at $2 a ton, and it really does spur in inventive activity, so yes. Would either of you like to comment on that? Um, well, I'd like, I guess, want to loop back and sort of add on that and something Adam said. When Adam was talking about utilities giving incentives, was anyone scratching their head and wondering, now wait a second, I pay them for power or natural <laughs> gas, why would they want me to use less? Yeah, people shaking their heads. There's a couple things, and this was an aha for me, so I thought I'd share it with you. On the power side, someone like Exelon has a set amount of capacity. And what they're trying to do is maximize that capacity. Because if they can, use you, if they can get you to use less energy, that means that the point when they are going to reach capacity goes out further in the future. And so they've done a business analysis. Yes, they're nice guys, but it's not completely out of the goodness of their hearts. But they've done a business analysis which has told them that it is more cost effective for them to encourage energy efficiency than it is to build more capacity. And so if you're ever wondering why would they do that, that's why they're doing it. They're trying to push that point out in the future. Now an interesting corollary to that is in the natural gas side because natural gas doesn't come from a plant. And so there's some interesting legislation is kicking around on how natural gas providers can be compensated for um, encouraging conservation. And it's called conservation pricing and, and things like that. So just want to give that to you as a, a bit of an aha moment. But adding on something Tom said about um, creating value out of this idea of carbon, many of your clients may have corporate campuses. And they have corporate campuses that have beautiful acres of turf grass that someone gets paid to mow and keep and looks beautiful as you drive by in the expressway. Well, in the future, there might be an opportunity for them to convert that to a more native landscaping that um, absorbs more carbon and they've reduced the gasoline they're burning to mow that lawn, so they've suddenly turned that into a revenue stream as opposed to a cost stream. Those are the types of innovation and opportunities out there that I think that we'll see more of if carbon becomes as it becomes more valuable and more regulated. Uh, just a, one more uh, short uh, uh, point on that. I was giving a talk outside of Kansas City uh, on the Kansas side of uh, the city, which sits on the border. 
And I, I was talking about the Chicago Climate Exchange. I gave the longer version of what I told you folks. And uh, there was a discussion about uh, folks who um, uh, participate in no-till farming or who plant their degraded lands in uh, native prairie uh, grasses and things of that nature. And if, the, if you manage your hay crop in a particular fashion, you can sequester more carbon. And there's opportunities for those folks to make money in, in CCX. And uh, so I gave my talk, and somebody succeeded me on the, on the rostrum, and he was a, a representative from out in the, in the western part of the state. And he said, well, you know, with all due respect to our guests from Chicago, I, I think this is a bunch of baloney and uh, global warming, you know, my eye, and things, uh, we're going to grow better if it's hotter here in our state. And, uh, you know, I think it's just a, a big hoax. And so that he gave his talk, and that was fine. And as we were leaving, he said, listen, no hard feelings, but, you know, we just don't see it the same way. And I said, well, you know, that's, that's fine. And uh, I said, listen, it says on here that you're a state representative, but you're a farmer. What do you farm? And he kind of blushed. He said, well, you know, I kind of I don't really farm that much. And he said, I, uh, I really, I, I, but I do have, I have grasslands, and, uh, you know, we have ha a haying operation. And I said, gosh, I said, you know, um, that part of the state is included in, in areas that can be compensated if you fall into the proper practices. And he said, really? <laughs> I said, yes, sir. He said, well, do you mind if I get your card? <laughs> so when there's a financial incentive, it, it motivates conduct. Well, people are in, in the room who've, who may be just wading into this <clears throat> are probably wondering, how do you actually measure this, uh, which is sort of the first step before you can really manage or reduce it, uh, and what does that take? How, you know, is this an expensive process, time-intensive, labor-intensive? And talking to universities, they've got a great uh, labor force and students <laughs> which are interested in doing this, and so they can uh, tend to do it very cheaply. And Pat, you mentioned in your uh, opening remarks that you went through this process. It'd be interesting, I think, for others to understand what that took in order to report to the climate exchange. Sure. It's actually very easy for a real estate company. We don't have fleets of trucks out there burning oil. Um, it's just a matter of accumulating the gas and electric bills, which accounting departments do every year for the budgeting and reporting process anyway. Um, so we did go through an audit. You know, we assembled everything. Auditors came in, checked the invoices. So, uh, you know, it was really a very painless process. Any experiences, uh, David or Tom? Uh, sure, I'll add a little bit to that. Uh, back when I was at Department of Environment, we had a program that was called Motor Masters. And it was specifically for building engineers and it was to teach them to learn their, to use their motors more efficiently. And so on the idea of measuring, it's, um, I think there are probably, Pat said this earlier, engineers who are smart folks who understand their buildings and they can see those opportunities to tune those buildings and make them run better. And I think that part of them being able to do that is to have the information available to them. Now instead of having one meter that sits outside that spins and it tells the story for power use in the entire building, perhaps it's better to have submeters or information so that engineers can truly control where the power is going at any time through the knowledge of where the power is going. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point. Uh, it sparked a couple of different thoughts. So the more information people have, uh, the better they're able to amend their behavior. Uh, one of the old saws is that you can't, um, you can't manage what you don't measure. And once you measure something, then you can manage it. And it, it really makes a difference to go through that process. We had 
just, just like what you discovered with the fact that uh, your, your lights were going on at 6 a.m. for no good reason. We have a member who's out in um, Colorado, and they had their roof warmers on 12 months out of the year. And uh, until they went through the audit process, like mm -hmm. you say, once you say, uh, once you go through, you look at all your emission sources and you start to question each one, you say, you know, it's nice to have this in February, but we really don't need it in August, even, even at uh, 12,000 feet. Um, it's great that your audit was pretty painless, um, and in this sector they tend to be for companies whose carbon profile is tied to their consumption of, you know, natural gas and electricity, you have bills, it's, it's already solution. For somebody like a DuPont, or, uh, where they have many, many large emitting sites, uh, they have chemical processes that produce off-gases not only of carbon dioxide, but of the other six greenhouse gases, which also need to be measured. It can be complex, and a, a lot of those companies say, listen, whether we ever make a dollar or have to spend a dollar to, to sell or buy carbon credits, it's worth our while to touch all of the different emission sources that we need to be thinking about where they're significant and have somebody uh, you know, put us through the paces of checking our work, uh, that that can be really the value of knowing where your emissions are from so you can manage them more effectively. I have a couple other thoughts on measurement. Um, one is, you know, in some of our buildings will have 20 different submeters. And so we, we now have the discipline of graphing the usage on each of those 20, and it helps you find things like, my God, a hot tub and a pool in a hotel, eat electricity like you couldn't imagine. Um, but we can see blips, we can see where we've implemented a project that it's showing results. So that, you know, as you mentioned, as you get more granule, it really gives you something to work with. The other thing, and this just was a fascinating project we did, an engineer suggested it. We set a couple young engineers to work in a hotel counting light bulbs in every room, in every ballroom, meeting room, office, restaurant. And so they cataloged for this room, you know, how many watts of electricity are in this room. What's the square footage? You get the watts per square foot. So you take that, then compare it to Chicago Energy Code, which is a, a pretty strict code in a, in a good measure. And we found rooms where there was literally quadruple code of electricity in them. And with these chandeliers, I'm guessing this is uh, probably over Chicago Energy Code right now, my <laughs> grandfather. But again, that's just another example of, uh, you know, if you focus on it and can get this granular information, you, you can really unlock some great possibilities. Many of you are probably pursuing lead on, on projects, uh, either for existing buildings or for new construction or even for uh, corporate interiors. Um, much of what was mentioned here sort of falls under the measurement and verification credit uh, under LEED. And, and what we're finding and even recommending to clients is that um, more than just getting the point, measurement and verification is a great way to recommission your building over time. And, and, and one of the ways to ensure uh, that you'll continue to, to meet these 20% reductions or maintain them and hopefully improve them over time is to be able to understand what's going on in the building. And so more metering is, is better than less metering. Um, on the subject of design, and this will be my last question before I open it up to, uh, uh, to the, the full audience to ask questions, is um, we talk a lot about sustainability and, and how that relates to uh, reductions in carbon emission and low energy. Um, 
density, which is a thing that California doesn't really understand very well. Um, how does density design and, and lead uh, play into reducing these impacts? Uh, California just passed a bill to uh, really ratchet up the thinking around planning so that we, we create places that are um, much more walkable, uh, that reduce car trips. Um, Pat was sharing with me uh, before the, the lunch a project that he's doing in Century City in California that uh, sort of adopts these practices. But um, how is Chicago is really, uh, you know, one of those cities that, that embraces that, uh, and how is that continuing to be fostered here, and, and how do you see that affecting this equation? Um, I'll start. Um, if you haven't seen it already, I encourage you to look at the Chicago Climate Action Plan. It should be available on the City of Chicago's website. Uh, it happened way after I was there. I can take no credit for it. But it's a really good plan that talks very specifically about actions that can be taken in all different sectors of the economy to reduce carbon emissions. So I encourage you to look at that. It's called the Chicago Climate Action Plan. Excuse me. And if you just Google it, you'll probably be able to find it. But it's certainly on the Department of Environment's webpage. I think uh, going back to the idea of density, what I think is interesting maybe 15 or 20 years out, is how concentrating people and uses in smaller spaces opens up more innovation for small-scale utilities. Because now we have these huge distributed systems where you've got one power plant that's providing energy to a, a great service area. You know, what if we had smaller power plants that provided energy to a smaller service area? You get higher efficiency because you're not losing so much power through the lines. You might be able to use renewable energy sources. Um, there's an example right downtown. It used to be called Unicom Thermal. It's got a different name now. But it's the idea of making chilled fluid in off hours when it's cheap to buy power. And then throughout the day, pumping that chilled fluid in a network through buildings who can benefit from the cooling. That's one of the things that I think the density in urban environments can offer us, is the opportunity to revisit those more localized neighborhood scale utilities and see if they are starting to make more sense. You know, there's a, uh, I, I don't know how many of you folks are familiar with the Center for Neighborhood Technology here in Chicago. It's uh, a wonderful organization. They do a lot of uh, thinking and consulting and advising on issues of uh, sustainability. And one of, the, one of their, their uh, uh, pieces that they, you'll often hear them speak about is they created a map of the Chicago metropolitan area, whatever it is, four, five, six counties. And they had a color intensity based on, the first map was a color intensity based on total carbon emissions. And gosh, you could see the city of Chicago was bright red. I mean, a lot of emissions out of Chicago. And then you got out to DuPage and then Kane and Will County and Lake County. And it dissipated uh, in terms of the total carbon emissions. And then next to that, they had a map that had carbon emissions per capita. And Chicago, to your point about density, uh, David, Chicago was a, a light color. And boy, out in those suburbs, per capita, if everybody has to drive uh, uh, eight miles to go to the store and uh, 12 miles to go to the high school and uh, 15 miles to go to church and an hour and a half to go see their parents, uh, that it, it became clear that density, while people tend to associate, quote, pollution with the urban area in terms of carbon efficiency, you, you can really uh, leverage the, the, the benefits of density to make things much more efficient in an area where people are more compact. I've, I've just been fascinated by the cultural difference. I, I spend my time in Chicago and Los Angeles. And 
Here we have a great public transportation network, a 24-hour city. Um, you know, people really can get by without a car. And I, I go to Los Angeles, and people drive two blocks to go to a meeting. And, and they wonder why they have traffic problems there. Sorry. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we're all for mixing living, recreation, work in one, one livable community. If well, I can add just one thought on that. I think that these conversations, for those of us in the room who are on the design side, I think this is a real opportunity for designers to show innovation. Because in a room like this, with lights that appear to be really bright, the, the design solution was probably more lights, more bulbs, yeah, more bulbs. And so now we'll be talking more about how do we get the same quality of lighting with less energy use. For the mechanical and electrical designers out there, it's instead of having all of your heated and cooled air forced from a space above down to you, how do you bring those heated and cooled, the heated and cooled air closer to the person where you really need it? And so I think there's lots of opportunities for designers, for um, contract contractors, for building managers to, to be more innovative in looking for ways of providing an equal level of service, whether it be temperature or lighting, but doing it in a way that reduces energy use and therefore reduces carbon emissions. I know Dan or, or someone has the mic. Uh, I'd like to open it up to uh, the audience to please uh, pose questions to the panel. Hi, uh, my name is Ira Holtzman. Our company, Lower Electric, helps clients pay less for energy. And I just wanted to offer a couple of uh, comments. Specifically, Illinois is a deregulated state. And when you talk about Commonwealth Edison for incentives to have people use less power and why there's rebates available, they don't make anything on the energy, the actual kilowatts. They rent the lines and the meters. And that's how they make their money. So if you use less, it doesn't come out of their pocket directly. But I think we were referring to Exelon, which is the power. Right. Well, Exelon obviously owns power generation. So that's it. Uh, and secondly, if you want to go to comedpowerpath.com, you can see your last 24 months of usage. Uh, and it'll list by kilowatt hour how much you've used. So it's a real easy way to establish a baseline. Just www.comedpowerpath.com. You need your meter number and your account number. So if you have your bill, then you can look and say, okay, here's how much I've used, and you can see the variances by month. That's a great piece of information. I'm going to do that tonight. That's really good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's for commercial. Others? This is for David. Uh, you mentioned that language is important in talking with the people that we're working with. Can you give some examples or uh, some ideas of where we can go to find current studies about some of the benefits of uh, sustainability and such, particularly around energy reduction and or occupant health and things like that? Um, sure. Um, the well, everyone probably heard the question. Um, the U.S. Green Building Council has done a series of routine studies on the performance of green buildings over time. And they have a variety of curves that show that over time, the amount of additional cost to get a certain level of certification is increased a certain percentage. So I think the US Green Building Council, as a starting point, um, is good at, at bringing that information together and making it available. Um, it's, there are, there's a couple of private firms, and I'll use Turner as an example. I don't know if there's anyone from Turner, Turner here who have done um, cost studies over the years, where they take their universal projects and they look at what it costs per square foot for certain uses to hit 
different levels of LEED um, certification. And so searching for those, I think, is, is helpful as well. Now, where you get into the black magic and the snake oil is on things like performance enhancement. Um, one of the things I learned when I worked at the city was if I was trying to convince someone, you know, if we had healthier indoor environment, we'd have more efficient city employees. And that went nowhere. <laughs> the idea of an efficient city employee just didn't, didn't fly. But uh, all that being said, you know, there, there are more studies that make a connection between reduced absenteeism and um, green buildings, improved test scores for children and green buildings. Um, I couldn't tell you exactly where to go, but those are the ideas. Um, and I think that over time, those studies are becoming more robust and more credible. They're, they're factoring out the, the things that could have accidentally made the numbers look better. Question back here. Yeah, I wanted to ask you to respond, if you would, to some of the criticism of cap and trade. Um, when the Waxman bill was first being debated in Congress, there was talk about the fact that the cost of cap and trade would disproportionately hit the manufacturing sector. And that, you know, the, the Waxman uh, claimed that the cost to American families would be something like, I think it was a, a cost of a postage stamp every day was, was essentially the cost. But a lot of people were saying because of the long-term implications of the manufacturing sector that I've heard numbers of a loss of a million manufacturing jobs by 2020. There's talk about $48 trillion in total spending by 2050. And then also, what's to keep a, a big polluter that uh, is constrained by the cap-and-trade system from offshoring their operations to, to countries where those, those same um, constraints don't exist? So I'd, I'd love to hear some of um, uh, your comments to some of these criticisms that are, that are floating around. Sure, I'll, I'll take that, uh, take the first crack at it. Um, there's a, f a few different things to bear in mind in that regard. First of all, uh, there is some uncertainty about exactly what the impacts would be. I mean, we, we would, no one will know until a bill is passed, until the detail of a bill is known, and uh, it, it works its way into the economy. Um, principle number one, consider, consider the source when you read projections about what things are going to cost. Um, if the administration says it's going to cost uh, the price of a postage stamp per day and the administration wants to see the bill um, passed, and consider whether you think it's credible or not. It very well may be, but you have to consider the source. Uh, for the source that, say, that says it's going to be $45 kajillion out of the economy by 2050, um, find out who it was who put that out. Um, I know that there has been a concerted effort by, by the, um, some folks in the um, oil exploration and production industry um, to put out papers that have numbers that are much, much higher than what the government projects. Uh, the Office of Management and Budget, which the party either in power or out of power, depending on the issue, always likes to fall back on because they're, they're nonpartisan, projects the costs for uh, an average household under Waxman-Markey to be about $150 per year, and I'm giving a round number. Um, which is a real number, it's, it's, it's real money, $150, but it's not $1,500 or $3,000, which some other folks have put forward. So uh, you have to, number one, consider the source of the, the, the projections. Number two, it, it will depend in large part on the details of the bill. And, and there's no bill that's yet signed into law. And so right now it's all um, negotiating. 
gosh, if we turn this lever this way and, and we turn this dial that way, it's going to increase the, the cost of carbon. If we provide a subsidy there, then it's going to decrease the cost of carbon. Um, a couple of things, uh, and again, I don't want to take up too much of the time, but when the president was running, uh, he said that the allowances in a national cap and trade program should be 100% auction. Everybody who emitted, who was under the cap, should have to buy an allowance for that. And that they should have to make their reductions from their, their baseline of the year 1990 emissions. That was a long time ago. We didn't use nearly as much energy in 1990 as we do today. Once he got into office and once the Waxman-Markey bill was matured and was eventually passed, uh, they got to the point where about 80% of the allowances would be given away in the early years to industries that would be sensitive to that increased cost and consumers that would be sensitive to that increased cost. And the baseline was shifted not 1990, but was shifted to the year 2005. So there are many, many different things that have been changed and massaged and tweaked to try to serve the dual purposes of serving the environmental ends and not crippling the government. And as a last aside, the industry that's been most vocal about how they would be harmed by adding cost to their production is the steel industry. They say, gosh, look at uh, Pittsburgh and Gary and the south side of Chicago where 30 and 40 years ago we had these great uh, you know, United Steelworker jobs and they're almost all overseas. You'll wipe us out if we have an additional 2, 3, 4, 5% cost due to a carbon cost on, uh, on our production. And so one of the things that has been proposed and would probably happen under those circumstances would be trade-sensitive industries where the jobs could be shipped overseas are ones that the government would say, you, we're going to give the allowances to. We won't make you buy them. We recognize there's a societal benefit to keeping some steel production in the United States. We don't want to cripple it. But those are all challenges. And the question of what's to stop a company from going offshore and going to another country, the only thing that would truly stop that would be if all the countries of the world came together and agreed that they were all going to play roughly by the same set of rules. And that's what the world is going to try to achieve or, or take a step towards. They won't achieve it, but take a step towards in Copenhagen in uh, December of this year. Yes, there's another important meeting in Copenhagen. It wasn't just last week's. So th those, that very issue is the type of thing that the world is wrestling with. Very good, very practical questions. Uh, well, first, a, a little bit of a wrap-up. Um, again, you know, looking back to this issue of why would um, an organization want to reduce its uh, energy and reduce its carbon footprint in the absence of a, a requirement to do it. Um, a couple of things that, that I heard, you know, first of all, um, you know, finding savings through information, finding opportunities. Um, you know, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, so often, until you shine the light on something and you analyze it, you don't even know where you have the opportunities. So step one, you might really be surprised, as with um, you know, many things, uh, if, you, if, you, if you take a look at it, you know, you're working a system and it seems um, like it's working, it's status quo, but if you take a closer look, you realize there's a lot of opportunities for savings. Um, getting ready for the future, uh, which is, um, of course, cap and trade's coming, you know, be ahead of it. Sale of uh, potential credits. I think that was a great point by Tom in terms of, you know, you may not realize something that you're already doing is actually a viable offset project that could create uh, financial benefit to you. Um, brand goodwill, touched down a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, in this day and age, um, those who are lagging behind in terms of their environmental consciousness um, really run a risk, especially as a public company, of being called out for that. I mean, there are folks out there who, um, 
you know, spend a lot of their time looking for reasons to downgrade companies, looking for reasons to call companies out for poor environmental performance. Um, and then uh, last point, opportunity for innovation. Um, I think Dave brought up a fantastic point, is that when you're faced with a problem, um, it creates an opportunity for all kinds of folks, um, you know, engineers and, and scientists and um, just even practical solutions to try to, uh, to, to try to innovate and, and improve the ways of reducing carbon emissions, whether through practical operational issues or through true uh, technological advancements. Um, but that's a little recap that I was kind of taking in, and I don't know if that was helpful to you all. I hope so. Um, but my question um, kind of goes to this idea when good things go bad. Okay, we're all talking about good things here, and it's, you know, we're uh, focused on a common goal. Um, but often when something is new, you take steps that, um, you know, may not always work out the way you wanted them to. And with uh, reducing energy and with reducing carbon footprint, there are some things that, um, you know, are pretty predictable in terms of producing positive results. There's other systems that are a bit more innovative um, to try to reduce energy, to try to re reduce carbon footprint. So uh, my question for you all, and whoever wants to take it is fine, is when have you, um, when have you seen projects um, succeed very well, and, and what is sort of the low-hanging fruit, if you will, of things that um, companies can do, um, and where you've seen maybe this, you know, maybe this goes to you, Pat. Um, what have you seen work very well? And conversely, what have you seen not work real well? And that would really be to the whole panel. Have you seen or, or have you had experience with organizations that have taken a bold step to try to do something that makes sense for them, you know, financially, ideologically, uh, but then have gotten themselves in trouble and had that be sort of a learning opportunity for the rest of us? I think probably the biggest example of something that failed, we, we were investigating probably five different systems to control temperatures within hotel rooms. One we were looking at pretty, pr pretty closely, we found out had been installed in another hotel. We knew the people that owned the hotel gave them a call. They spent a million dollars putting this system in and they found that the desk clerks and everyone else was constantly overriding the system. So that, I mean, they legitimately were getting zero in savings off their million dollar investment. So the, the more you give human interaction a chance to affect something, the, the worse off you, you may be. So we really tried to focus on things that a guest or a tenant can't touch, but things that are behind the scenes and where they aren't going to notice it. That's where I've had my greatest success. I would just emphasize the importance of integration because um, at the Thompson Center down here, the State of Illinois building, um, there's been issues with heating and cooling there for years. What a lot of people don't realize is it was designed with triple pane glass and it was value engineered, which usually isn't engineering or valuable, back to single pane glass with no changes to the mechanical systems. So it goes back to the importance of integration. As you seek, to, and I guess that would be an example of a failure, but as you seek to make your buildings more energy efficient and more sustainable, it's important to realize that buildings are systems and all pieces work together. A change here will affect a change someplace else. Uh, a gentleman named Bill Browning, who used to be at the Rocky Mountain Institute, called it 50 Stupid Things, where if you take a traditional building and say, okay, we're going to make it green, let's stick this on it and stick this on it, you end up with a traditional building with a bunch of stupid things stuck on it because it wasn't really integrated. 
And uh, in terms of companies that we've seen who maybe had a situation where they thought, oh gosh, this didn't work out the way we thought, there's a couple quick examples. One is a, a power company, and, and they thought they had a real good sense for what their greenhouse gas emissions profile had been in the relevant years for our program, so they joined. Uh, and they got involved, and, and uh, they started to go through the audit, and they, they learned that what the data that they had been keeping and that they had been scrupulously keeping and, and confirming, et cetera, et cetera, was wrong, and I don't know the detail of why it was wrong. And they were, really, they were furious. They didn't have that easy trip through the audit. Uh, they, it was rocky, it was rough, they were aggravated. They, you know, somebody saying, who, who in the heck signed us up for this program is a pain in the neck? Uh, you know, we thought we were gonna have all these credits. And what they came out with at the end of the day was a true set of accurate data. So they were sorry that things didn't turn out initially as they thought, uh, that was their first impulse. But when it was all done, they said, well, I guess it's better that we figured it out now, and now we know, we know where it lies. The other illustration is, uh, can be seen with the city. Uh, the city of Chicago was a founding member of the exchange, and Mayor Daley, who, who has his hand in so many different things in the city, truly is a believer in sustainability and environmental uh, progress, and, and really has taken a, a leadership position. And uh, because they're the government, they're subject to public scrutiny, and, and they're regularly reporters when the mayor talks about sustainability who's, who say, well, isn't it true that, you know, your, uh, you know, emissions aren't always going where they're supposed to go, this, that, and the other thing, and, and the thing that gets lost in the mix is that they have, you know, they've built a number of new libraries, they've built a number of new fire stations, built a number of new police stations. Uh, so as their total uh, this number of buildings increases, that they have a challenge, but that they have really scaled them down to make them as efficient as possible so sometimes, particularly if you're a public entity, if you're going to take the risk of making a public commitment, you're out there for people to, uh, to throw stones at. But if nobody takes, the, takes those opportunities to really be out in front, then nobody makes progress. That's the way we look at it. Well, we're a few minutes past our program time. I, I want to thank Cornette uh, for giving us the opportunity to speak with you today about this subject. Uh, thank Jeanette and, and Dan for, uh, for hosting us. Uh, and thank our speakers uh, for the great information and uh, uh, insights into this area. We'll be available for questions afterwards individually if you'd like to come up and talk with us. So thank you very much and, and uh, enjoy your afternoon. Thank you. Thanks, James. Uh, remember, there's uh, the green surveys that were passed around. Please uh, fill those out. And uh, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys.